We'll talk about two things. One is... Oh, there's kids yelling. Oh, that's lovely. Um, it's because they want to hear me so badly. Um, no, don't leave, Pastor Andrew. Um, two things. Hey, uh, our worship, I don't know how many of your experience with worship services are in your past. I, just, I have to highlight this because it was just, it's just, this morning was such an epitome of it. It's so good. You may notice we walk through a psalm each week. Uh, we, we may not always do that, but uh, what we are doing, and I just want to explain it so you can see the beauty of what we're trying to sing and communicate Often churches make worship about the style of the songs and how you sing them, when in reality there is a story being told in our worship services. Here's where we began in Psalm 138. Psalm 138 has two things. One is that God is exalted above all the earth, and second, that in his exaltation, he helps the lowly. So where did we start this morning in our praise and our worship? Here's the story as it was told. We started with the exaltation of God. We worshiped him, and we read about how he loved and cares for the lowly. We prayed about that together as a church, and then we sang about him being mighty to save, how God in his exaltation has used his might and his power to save lowly people like you and I. That's the story that's being told. And then where did it end? It ended praising and worshiping God for the gospel about the story of how he used his might to save the lowly, and it ended where? Back up with him, exalted on, on high. That is the story of the gospel that we sang this morning. So as you come and worship, I hope each and every week you'll find that there is a story being weaved in our worship service. John and Jen did a great job doing that, and Chris and Coda have carried that, that tradition on. It's called the liturgy, the story of worship. And so we are, we're glad that we can walk you through that each and every week, the gospel. Just wanted to point that out because it was just so beautifully done this morning. I think you all should enjoy and appreciate the art that is going on there on top of just simply the music. Second, um, if you're a member of our church, a little bit of family business this afternoon, right after the service, five minutes after the service, everyone else, if you're not a member, will be dismissed. And then we'll have a congregational meeting to elect officers. Uh, we only have one officer come before you for nomination, which is Ed Hogan for elder. So if you're a member, please do plan to stick around for a few minutes afterwards. That meeting will be very, very brief, maybe about 10 minutes max. That is it in regards to some other family business. Let's get to God's word. We are going to take the next two weeks and be looking at Luke chapter 15. A very famous series of stories here. And then after this, we'll take the series of the fall to walk through a series on Colossians, focusing on the supremacy of Christ in all things. But before we get to that, we're going to look at the gospel of Luke for a couple weeks. I'll read the entire chapter, so bear with me. 32 verses, picking up in verse 1 of Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying... This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In verse 8, or, that one, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, 
For I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into far, far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me instead as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet You never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother, this brother, your, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Since the reading of God's word, and the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Amen. We're going to take two weeks to look at this very famous and well-known story from the scriptures. It begins in verses 1 and 2 with Jesus surrounding himself with tax collectors and sinners. Sinners is a euphemism for prostitutes most likely. And yet there we see the reaction of the religious elites, the, the middle class religious folks of the day, the Pharisees, is anger. And they begin to question Jesus as to why he is eating with such sinners. That's verses 1 and verses 2. And in response to the sentiments of the Pharisees, Jesus shares a series of stories, three stories, in fact. And in a way, this series of stories, or parables as they are known, fall out much in the way that a play has different acts. There are three acts to this play. Act one is the story of a shepherd who pursues a lost sheep. He finds it, brings it home, and rejoices. Act two is the story of a woman who seeks, who's lost a coin, and she seeks it and finds it, and then rejoices. And Act 3, the story to which we will focus our attention for the next couple of weeks, is known as the story of the prodigal son. But this title, as it has often been known and even titled in your Bibles, is a misnomer for unlike the first two parables, where there was only one lost sheep and one lost coin, in this account it begins this way. And there was a man who had 
How many sons? Two sons. Two sons. You see, Act 3 does not have one scene, but it has two scenes. And in fact, the second scene is quite stunning. The final scene of the final act, and what we find in that final scene is odd and unsettling. An add-on story that is meant to disturb and distress and even challenge. But we'll get to that scene next week. This week, I want us to draw our attention to the story of the first brother, known as the prodigal son, a story with the same exact plot line and themes as the first two previous stories, the two previous acts. And here's the outline of each of these three acts. It's this. First is that there is someone who is lost, someone or something who is lost. Then it tells us what it is to be found, or in particular, it actually tells us about the finder. And then third, finally, it tells us what it is to be celebrated. So three words, lost, found, celebrated. We begin the story at the beginning where we find the son's interaction with the father and what we see there what it means to, about being lost. In the story of the prodigal son, we find what is known as, or what can be known as the classic and traditional rebel story. The son who wanders off, takes the goodies, runs from home, and lives in however way he sees fit, living out a scandalous life. We don't know too much about it other than the fact that he wasted his money on prostitutes and the like. Now, we in our Christian ease, in our Christian little world, we often have different words for titling who these people are. We call them rebels. We call them prodigals, as this young man is entitled often. We might call these, this man backslidden or unchurched, or a non-Christian. Those living in sin without thought of God, living any way they choose, and anger at everyone else who would challenge them. This is how we entitle these people. That's how we see them. But the consistent description of this story is not backslidden, or non-Christian, or non-churched, but it's simply this. Lost. Lost. In verse 4, when we talk about the man, we have a sheep, and the sheep is described as lost. The woman who loses the 10 silver coins says having 10 silver coins if she loses one coin. This is a passage and this is a story about a man who is lost. That is the description of him. And what we see in the scriptures is this is the mission of Jesus. The mission to seek and save who? The non-Christian, the unchurched, no, the lost. So Jesus, how do you describe Zacchaeus? Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, he was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Someone should write a song about that, right? Zacchaeus hears about this guy, Jesus, and he gets, runs up into a sycamore tree to hear Jesus, and he hears Jesus' gospel proclamation, he invites him to his house, and he spends time with Jesus. Zacchaeus is a tax collector who has swindled people out of money for much of his life, and they are facing Jesus and facing Jesus' kindness and love for him. He then repents of it, and he says, I'm going to return all of my money and more to the people that I've swindled. He doesn't pray a prayer. He doesn't pray the sinner's prayer, but Jesus knows his heart has changed. And then Jesus says this. This is great because the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. So the question this morning is, are you lost? Are you lost? It's not a very happy term, right? No one likes to admit they are lost. It takes a lot of guts to admit you're lost. You know, in the days before GPS, this was the cliche fight between the husbands and wives, right? Honey, are you lost? What? I'm a man, and therefore, as a man, I have an innate sense of knowing where I am at all points, at all times. I am not lost. The most difficult thing about being lost, and the most dangerous thing about being lost, is when you don't know you're lost. 
So the question is, are you lost? Do you have a sense of your lostness today? That's the beginning of growth. This passage helps us understand and define what is spiritual lostness. Often people point to the outward things, and we will look at a few of the outward things, but I want to point to two things to help us define what lostness is, and maybe you'll see yourself in these descriptions. Lostness, first and foremost, in this account and in this story of the prodigal son, is being relationally separated from the father. Is being relationally separated from the father. The great sin of this man's life is not that he misspent his money on prostitutes and a partying sort of lifestyle. That is a problem. That's a significant problem. But that is not the heart of the issue that's going on in the story. The younger brother comes to the father. The prodigal son comes and says, Father, give me my share of the estate is what he says. Now, this would have been shocking. What is going on is the original hearers, on one hand, would have understood that this is not an illegal request. It's not illegal. It's not against the law for the son to ask for his share of the state. He was due 30 or 40 percent of the estate, but it was supposed to come to him on his father's death. So this was not breaking the law. This was not violating a law, but this was violating instead a relationship. The request does not break the law, but instead it breaks the father's heart. When the son came and asked the father for his share of the estate now, the original hearers would have understood, and what they would have heard is that what this son is asking for and essentially saying is, Father, I don't want you to be alive anymore. I want you dead. Father, give me what is coming to me upon your death, and then I can live as if you no longer exist. I wish you were dead. In fact, I can't wait for you to be dead so that I can get your stuff. What does he want more? He wants all the father's stuff. He doesn't want the father at all. That's what he's communicating here. My own dad, in talking about this from his his own sermon on the prodigal son, used a description I thought it was apropos to bring it to our day. He said, this is so reminiscent of the teen girl who, in an argument with her mother, says, I hate you, and I want you to die. But first, will you take me to the mall with my friends? I'll take the gifts and the things you can do for me, but rather I would just let you have you out of my life for the most part, other than to serve me with the things that you can give to me. It's interesting. What's so, what's so interesting about this is Jesus Christ could have, could have, in his parable, could have pictured or given us a description of all sorts of evil sins, right? He could have given us murderers or child abusers or rapists or thieves. But what does he come up with? A man who simply says this, Father, I don't want anything to do with you. That is the heart of a prodigal. This is the essence of prodigal living, and it's the essence of lostness. It's to not know God as your father. To be lost, to be a prodigal, is to be relationally separated from God, and in fact, be the one who created that separation by rejecting God the Father. That's what it is to be lost. Now, some of you might say, I don't feel lost. I don't feel like God and I are on the outs, like there's a problem between us. I'm not entirely sure if God exists, but if I do, I don't think there's a problem necessarily between us. I don't feel some deep gap in relational separation. Well, perhaps you don't feel some sense of acute separation from God, but perhaps you feel something else, some other experience of separation from God. Let me describe it this way. This is what it could feel like emotionally to be separated from God. And you may not account it as your separation from God, but it's issue. And it's this. If you have a sense of homelessness, it means you're separated from God. Homelessness is the emotional experience of being lost. Let me show you something. When the prodigal begins to realize what he has done, when he begins to think about, what does he begin to think about when he comes to, when he realizes how his life has turned? He thinks about life in his father's house. 
He says this, in my father's house there's bread to spare it, I am here starving. Now, I don't think this is overly profound to think this way, but let me ask you this. What is home? Now, if you spend way too much time in Cracker Barrels, you immediately come to mind, you think, home is where the heart is, right? That's what's coming to your mind. In some way, that colloquial little quaint statement is somewhat true, because what is it trying to say? Seriously, what is home? Home is not a geographical place, although the place, the geographical place becomes the representation of home. But home is the relationships that are there. It is relational attachment. It is the place of acceptance and love and belonging. That is what home is. Henry Nouwen says this. Henry Nouwen has a great book called Return to the Prodigal Son in which he walks through this passage of Scripture, but he, he does so as a meditation of Rembrandt's famous painting entitled Return to the Prodigal Son. And here's what Nouwen says about home. Home is the center of my being where I can hear the voice that says, you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. Jesus made it clear there is a home with the Father, but if I decide to take control of my life, if I go out into the world, I will keep running around asking everything, do you really love me? Do you really love me? That is the experience of homelessness. What Nyan is saying is that when you're homeless, when you're spiritually lost, when you're relationally separated from the Father, is that you don't feel like you have a place of permanent love and acceptance anywhere in this world. And so you will run from relationship to relationship, from job to job. And in fact, for many of you, you have run from church to church to church. And this is what you long for. And you were a prodigal and you were lost and you were separated from your father trying to control your life, trying to fill the gap that only your father, that only home can fill. That's the emotional experience. So if you're experiencing that today, you may not have some acute sense, oh man, I'm, I'm separated from God. But if you have the acute sense that you don't have a place of, long, of love and belonging, then that is homelessness. And that is your heart crying out for a father who loves you. That is one sense of lostness. The other sense is this in the passage. Lostness is simply to lose your senses. Sheep, how are they described? They're senseless. They're dumb. Coins, they're senseless. Prodigals running from God are senseless. When the story shifts and the prodigal stops running from the father and says, begins to move for the, towards the father, how is it described? In verse 17 it says, but when he came to himself. In other words, when he came to his senses. The two descriptions in life is what it looks like to be without your senses. It's two descriptions of lostness, to be without sense. It plays out in two different ways primarily. First is to lose a sense. To, when you lose, have lost your senses, you've lost your moral compass. You have no moral compass. Nothing is clear. There's no sense of right or wrong anymore. You find yourself doing things you never imagined doing. See, when you come to your senses and after this kind of behavior, you realize and go, what have I done? This is the mindset of someone who has come to their senses and who has been out of their mind. How could I have done that? See, some of you have walked down a road at some points in your life where you reach a point in the way you're living, in the way you're abusing other people. Men, maybe the way you view women might be a good description of this in which you cannot believe the way you're treating other people. You cannot believe that illegal activity that you took part in. You cannot believe you spoke that way. This is how we're described in our sin. We are morally senseless. We have no ability to see what is right or wrong. That's how we can live in a country. We are a country of prodigals. We can slaughter millions of babies and not see that it's a problem. 
That's moral senselessness. That's why as Christians, we pull our hair out and we go, why can't I see this? We should be sympathetic because our world has lost its mind. Jesus says this about those who slaughtered him on the cross. Father, forgive them for they what? They know not what they do. Romans 1, the description of when you have been broken in your relationship with God and you've been separated from him, the way it describes it in Romans 1 and Romans 2 is that God has given us over to the foolishness of our minds. When you've been separated from the Father, you become senseless morally. But you also, the way this may play out more poignantly for many of you, though, is when you've lost your senses, you've also lost a sense of direction in your life. Not just simply morally, but any sense of direction. Losing your senses is also the feeling that your life has come unmoored and unanchored. This is what this prodigal is experiencing, isn't it? He's feeding pigs. The story assumes that he is a Jew. What is the lowest point of a Jew? He's hanging out with pigs. Unanchored. You're blown and tossed this way and that way. You are confused by the direction of your life. Your life feels out of control. This is the feeling of a senseless life. You feel like perhaps even you're losing your sanity. Outwardly, outwardly, you may have lots of money. You may not look like this prodigal. Outwardly, things may look okay, but inwardly, you're an absolute mess, and you know it. That is the life of someone who is lost. This is a sign that you are lost without the Father. Now, what is so wonderful about these parables and why they're so famous, in large part, is why this prodigal son story in particular is famous, is the great turn of the sheep and the coin and the prodigal son is that they are all found, right? If you're lost and have lost your sense of direction and have no, no way of getting home, what do you need more than anything else? Someone to find you. That's the second theme we see in all of these stories. First, you're lost, you must understand that, but second, we've got, we got to see what it means to be found. Being found. Being found... We just walk it right back. Being found means this. It means coming to your senses. The first thing that must happen is that you must come to your senses. When you're lost, the first thing is you must understand is that you are lost. You will perpetually remain lost unless you come to a sense of your lostness. Sin has blinded us to what is real. And it blinded the prodigal to the consequences of his sin. But suddenly, what does it say in verse 17 again? When he came to himself. What is that? When you've come to your senses, when you see how much your life is a mess and the consequences of you controlling your life, that is you coming to your senses, that is the beginning, that is the ignition of what we call repentance. Coming to your senses is an awakening to your condition and your position both before God and in this world. You must be awakened. And very often this awakening is rather rude, isn't it? You find yourself one day feeding with the pigs, confronted by the reality of your situation, the difficulty of life that you're in. Often, what do we, how do we describe this? We call this reaching rock bottom or coming to the end of yourself. Coming to the end of yourself when you're forced to face the reality that you can no longer control your life, that you cannot build a home that is worthy, that you absolutely need to live a life with the Father, not apart from the Father. Coming to the end of yourself is not merely saying, my life stinks, but it's also saying this, my life stinks, and I caused it. You see, many people growing sick of the consequences of their sin will jump right back into blindness. They'll see that their life is a mess, but then what do they do? They shake their fist, oddly enough, at the father that they've rejected. God, how can you let this happen in my life when you're the one who brought it about? 
No, coming to the end of yourself is to say, my life stinks, and I am the one responsible for it. I have used the Father's gifts. I am the one who has rejected the Father, and I have squandered this life and made it a mess of itself. What does this son say in verse 18? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The person who comes to an end of themselves, who's hit rock bottom truly and begins the process of repentance, is one who sees that life stinks, and they take responsibility for it. And this is painful. It is painful. You hear people say it. Perhaps you parents have prayed it for your prodigal child, praying for your child to hit rock bottom, but that is a painful process to watch, is it not? Perhaps you are the prodigal. This is your testimony. And you've lived this out, and it was not fun. And perhaps you're in it now, and it is not happy. But here, this might be God's pursuit of you. Hitting rock bottom is the prayer of many parents because they know it might simply be God taking away, stripping all things from you so that what? You have no other choice but to go home. The Heidelberg Catechism, question one. It's interesting to find something so sweet and so truthful in a creedal statement. People hate them, but they're actually beautiful. And here's what it says in the first catechism question. What must a man do to live and die happily? It says this. Here's the answer. To see how great our sins and our miseries are. The first step towards joy and rejoicing and being found is to know how miserable your life really is. But what is it that awakens the prodigal circumstances? What is it that brings the light to his eyes to see what is going on? It is the measure and degree of how bad things have gotten, but I think it's something more than that. Verse 16, picking up there and reading through verse 18. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, what's the first thing he thinks about? When he came to himself, he says this. He thinks about his father's household. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger. Therefore, I will rise and go to my father's house. Coming to your senses and not simply being confronted with the miserable condition that you live in, but is being confronted with your condition in comparison to something much better. And the son knows something that is much better. Do you remember, remember, if you have always grown up in the slums and you've never experienced, never even known that anything else could be possibly better, you don't think that your condition is awful. I don't necessarily remember this, but I've read stories about this, about children in Soviet Russia. In some of the worst times of their economic days, as they would still be fed, that they would think about, hear these stories about impoverished American children and how awful life was in America. Why did the Soviet government need to feed them that? Because if they knew the truth, they would rebel. Life would change. It's the same thing for us. You need a comparison to know that your condition stinks. Phil Kage, he's one of the greatest guitarists of all of history. He is unbelievable. If you've had an opportunity to hear Phil Kage play, it's amazing. He learned how to play with his right hand first and then lost two fingers and so had to relearn how to play with his left hand. I one time sat for two and a half hours and watched Kage play mesmerized. But he says this in one of his songs in which he's giving his testimony in the song. He says this, coming to Christ was like waking up from the longest dream. How real it all seemed until God's love broke through. Your condition doesn't appear so miserable until you have a comparison to something else, and that is the Father's love. Being confronted with the incomparable goodness and kindness, and for some of you, for the first time, that's what you need, and for others of you, you simply need to remember the echo of God's goodness to you that reverberates deep down in your mind. And it's in that you become alive. It is the shining light of God's grace to remind you of his goodness 
That is the thing that brings you the light into your life once again. So you know that you can see your miserable state. You know what is interesting is that in the shepherd and the sheep story, the shepherd physically runs after the sheep. And the woman in the coin story, the woman is the one who seeks out the coin. But it's interesting here and kind of confusing here because we look and we see the father doesn't appear to be out searching for the son. Why is that? Well, for one, it's a different kind of scenario, right? You can't really have a relationship with a sheep and with a coin. But pursuing a prodigal is very, very different. This is a relationship with a person. The father doesn't run after the son physically, but he does run after him. How does he pursue him? He pursues him with his love and his kindness and his goodness. You see, there's an interesting and confusing part of the story at the very beginning, right? The prodigal comes and asks his father, will you give me my share of the estate? Have you ever asked the question, why did the father even give it to him? He doesn't have to. You see, there's, before the son, before the father, there's two options. And what everyone would have expected, and the original hearers of the story would have expected, is that what the father should do is absolutely reject the son. Not only will you not get your inheritance, but I'm kicking you out of the family. What this story is, what it's giving before us is there's two options for the father. He can give the son what he wants and send him on his way and keep open the relationship, or he can reject and disown and essentially put to death the relationship fully and finally. What beckons the son, even in his lowliest state, is the remembrance of the goodness of the father and all the gifts that he gave him. You see, this is the story that you and I have, is that God the father, and when we, through Adam and Eve, we rejected God the father, and all we said is, we want your good gifts. We want our sexuality, and we want power, and we want to consume whatever we want to. We want all the things that you can give. We don't want you. It's interesting. He should have killed us right then. That's what the father could have done, but he doesn't. He doesn't. In fact, it says in the New Testament for generation upon generation, he was patient, waiting for the time of redemption. In other words, he's put out for generation, for people after people, misusing his good gifts, the inheritance that we've been giving, that was meant to give glory and honor to the Father. But instead, we've misused it for our own glory and for ourselves. The Father pursues the Son with his loving kindness and his goodness by even giving him the gifts himself. So being found means you come to your senses. This is the result of God's love and God's kindness pursuing you and drawing you home so that you remember what it was like living in the Father's house. But ultimately, you are not returned and you have not been found until you are in complete relationship with the Father. What must happen? The Son must go home, and when he gets home, what must happen? The Father must accept him. Now, often when people preach on this passage, what they, the focus is they give on the fact that the son repented. They, they look at this, this story as a principle of what repentance looks like. And there is many wonderful principles to glean about what repentance looks like from here. First, the son recognizes. Second, he takes responsibility. Third, in repentance, you turn your life around and you go home. He did all those things. And then he shows up and he says, he confesses his guilt and proclaims that he is unworthy. He does all of those things. But understand this, this is not a story about repentance first and foremost. Because his repentance is not true Christian repentance. When he goes home, he is concocting an idea to get back into the Father's graces. And how is he going to be welcomed back into the Father's household? By the Father's goodness and kindness and love? No. He says, Father, make me like one of your hired servants. He's going to do what? 
He's going to labor his himself back into the family's good graces. And in fact, what he says here is he wants to be a hired servant, not one of the servants. A servant, a basic general servant, would have actually lived in the father's household. He's not even asking for that. He wants to live in the city, still separated from the father. His repentance is good, but it is not perfect. He needs something else. You see, he's still trying to rely upon himself. He's come to the end of himself, sort of. This is how many of you have lived your Christian life. You've confessed and you've come back into the church, but your paradigm of the Christian life is that I must make up for those couple years where I walked away from the Lord and you have no joy in your Christian walk. What What we need, though, in order to be fully restored, in order to be completely found, is we need to be welcomed back into full relationship with the Father, and that can only be done as an act of God the Father himself. What do we see? Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. There is hardly a more beautifully and artistically woven picture of the gospel in all of Scripture than verse 20. G.K. Chesterton said of verse 20, he said, it is the display of the furious love of God. What's the father doing? He's on the front porch, and he is seeking out his son. It says he feels compassion for him. Literally, it says his intestines are all cut up. He is twisted up with knots inside, longing for his son to come home. And then what does the father do? He runs. He runs. That is a beautiful word. Men over 30 in the ancient Near East would never run, though. To run as this father did, to hike up his robes and display his undergarments, left him open for scorn, and it was, a lot, it was not dignified to do such a thing. It was to be viewed as one who has lost control of themselves. He would be scorned for such an act, and yet he does it anyways. To run after his son. The father ran. Courtney Reisick, she's a pastor's wife in Arkansas, and she writes for Christianity Today and Gospel Coalition. Courtney was once a prodigal daughter. She tells the story about the most informative event in her life when she had run off from her parents. She had rejected them during college. She had scorned all their approaches. She wanted nothing to do with them. She lived her absolute rebel's lifestyle. But her parents prayed for her every day. So one day when she was at the end of herself, she says, when she was done with her sinful life, she said, she called up her parents and she said this simply, I want to come home. They were overjoyed. They had been praying for her to hit rock bottom, and it had come true. And they did everything they could to bring her home sooner than later. They paid for her moving truck. They brought her flights home, and they even began to help her find a new college to go to. But in the midst of finishing school and getting ready to move, she came down with mono. She couldn't function at all. She was uninsured, spending thousands and thousands of dollars at the ER. She had no friends, no money, and no energy. So her father left his work immediately, jumped on a plane, and flew to Michigan where she was going to school from Texas. He rented a car. He got a car. He's driving to where she was going to school, and the car breaks down. And he calls her, and she says the most memorable words of her life. He said this in desperation almost. He said, Courtney, I will get to you no matter what. If I have to walk, if I have to run to you, I will get to you. She said her father eventually found a Greyhound bus, and when he arrived, he embraced her with tears streaming down his face. 
She said her father hugged her. For two years, she had spurned and rejected her parents, but he completely forgave her, embraced her with love and care, and he said to her, I'm on a rescue mission to bring you home. This is the picture of a father who runs after sinners. Runs after sinners. It's reading Charles Spurgeon on his account of the prodigal, and he had this incredible line. He said this, slow are the steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. Slow are the steps of repentance, but swift. Swift are the feet of God to the sinner to forgive. The father ran. The father embraced. There's another beautiful word there. And then what does he do? The father kissed the son. The kiss of the father. Have you experienced the kiss of the father? To be kissed by the father is to experience the fullest expression of love and mercy and intimacy and forgiveness is to experience physically the Father's joy over you. And the Father completes the restoration, doesn't he? He takes the robe, his own robe, the best robe from the family, and he takes the family signet ring, representing the sign and seal being welcomed back into the households, and he puts it on the boy. This man has been fully restored to sonship. Not partial, not a servant, not a hired hand, but full sonship. This is what it is to be found. To be found is to know that you are a son and daughter of the king, the father of the universe. One last thing I want to point out this morning, though. And this is actually the main point of all the parables. And that is that not only does God seek out sinners, not only does he find them and bring them home, but he rejoices when they The father, what does he do? He throws a party and brings his sinful son into the party. What is Jesus doing at the very beginning of this, of this chapter? What has the Pharisees all angry and bent out of shape? Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. To eat with someone was an intimate act. To say, I am intimately acquainted and I am friends with these people. These parables are to answer the grumbling of the Pharisees with what? The gladness of God. They are grumbling. How can you hang out with such sinners? And Jesus' response is, look, don't you see that God is glad to hang out with such sinners as these? Verse 7, just so I tell you, when the, when the shepherd has found the sheep, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Rejoicing. Verse 9 and verse 10, and when she has found it, the woman finds the silver coin. She calls all her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And Jesus says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verse 23, and the father says, bring the fattened calf and kill it and do what? Let us eat and celebrate and then he says this, for this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And now let us do what? Celebrates. And then when he goes out to the older brother and pleads with him to come into the party, he says, it is fitting for us to celebrate because your brother has come home. Each parable ends with what? Joy, rejoicing, and celebration. Now understand, I'm, I may be belaboring this here at the end for just a second, but the point of these parables is not this. It is not God is like the shepherd. And it is not God is like the woman. And it is not even that God is like the father. The point of these parables is to say this, is that if a shepherd acts like this, and if a woman acts like this, and if a father on this earth acts like this, how much more respond to you when one of his children comes home? That means these parables are merely, what we experience in the reading of these is merely a foretaste of God's love over us. 
It is nothing, it is unimaginable and incomparable that even Jesus can even give us, communicate to us the fullness of God's love for us in these stories. That's what's being communicated here. Have you experienced that love? The fact that he celebrates over you. What does he do? He calls the angels of heaven, it says. Michael, Gabriel, we don't know the names of all the other angels, but he calls all of them too to worship and to be excited and to rejoice with him in heaven over your coming home. And it says this in Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17. A weird, vague, bizarre passage in Zephaniah begins this way. It talks about God's judgment over Israel and the nations in the first part of chapter 3. And then it talks about in the middle part of chapter 3 how God, through judgment, though, is going to bring them home. And then it says this, picking up in verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. He shall never again, you shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. And then verse 17 is beautiful. For the Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love, and he will exult over you with his singing. What is he doing? Heaven is throwing a parade in your honor in which God the Father is singing over you, his exaltation and his love. You're the object of his celebration. This is how heaven is described, right? Heaven is an eternal party to come to the banqueting table of God the Father. And what happens there? Does it have diminishing returns, that party? No. The wine gets better and better and better. It's a beautiful day. So here's the question. If you were a prodigal and you came home, do you still, are you still amazed by the grace of the Father? Do you rejoice and celebrate daily? And the message of the truth of the gospel, that you are welcomed home with a kiss. If you're a prodigal and you know it, would you have the audacity to evaluate your life and compare it to one such as this? You see, what we don't see here is the cost, the cost of bringing us back home. Now, it is a moving moving statement of Father's love for us. But the parable ends with this. An older son who will not come into the party. See, what the original readers would have understood is this. The father doesn't leave home. His love pursues him. But the person who was physically supposed to chase down the younger brother was the older brother. He was supposed to find him and bring him home. Now, when the father welcomes the son back, you know what? He, he welcomes him back into full rights as a son. That means he's back in the inheritance. Everything that was to be the older, older brothers is now cut again. You see, we are brought back into family because at the great cost of the older brother. But what do we have here? These poor sinners in this day, the Pharisees are angry. How can you bring these sinners back in? This poor prodigal, this older brother is angry about this. He has not pursued his brother. He is angry about his brother being brought back in. He has a terrible older brother, but you don't. Because the ultimate point of this parable is this. As Jesus is calling out the Pharisees saying, you are not being the older brothers you're supposed to be, but I am, and I have left the father's household, and I am pursuing sinners to eat with them. And while you and I get the father's kiss, Jesus got the kiss of betrayal. That's the gospel. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us who are prodigals in this room to be willing to do some evaluation of our lives. To see the mess that we've made. To see how, how things have gone when we have controlled our lives. Gracious God, I simply ask for this right now, that your spirit would fall to awaken and make alive hearts once again to bring sight to the blind, to help those who are lost know indeed that they are lost. May a quickening ray jump into our prison cells right now. May the light of the goodness of God make us alive and the ability to see once again. Lord, I pray that prodigals in this room today would come home. Gracious God, for those of us who were prodigals and have been brought back, I pray that you would give us the ability to rejoice once again. Lord, I pray that we would remember our story. We remember the fact that we were once far from you, but you came and you pursued us and you brought us. When we were dead, when we were running as fast as we could from you, you pursued us by your love and your goodness. And may you flood that truth over us once again and lead us to worship. Better word, may you lead us to celebrate and to rejoice. We ask this in the name of your perfect son. Amen.